Hi, and welcome back to Winston and Strawn's Let's Talk Lending podcast. I am Erin Webb, a finance associate in the Houston office. This is part two of the Let's Talk Oil and Gas Loans Financing the Energy Evolution series featuring Ryan Hunsaker, a finance partner in the Houston office, and guest speakers Brett Fenn, a managing director at Texas Capital Bank, and Blake Hirschman, a senior vice president at Independent Financial. So tying that back to commodity prices, you know, you're saying, okay, so long term, you're thinking 60, 90 bucks, um, depending on where we are. I noticed how I gave a really wild yeah. answer. Well, I was say, depending on where we are on any given day these days, I mean, it's down 9% today, you know, you're it's triple digits not that long ago. So you clearly, in order to get to that 60, 90 bucks, you're, you're clearly going to need more production, right? OPEC has said, we're tapped out. We can't turn on plugs or spigots any more than we currently have, at least for a foreseeable future. So if you've got you know, U.S. companies who are out there and need now ramp up production, start drilling wells, because for the last few years, for the variety of reasons we talked about, they just haven't had the incentive to do so, where does that capital come from? It's, a lot of it's gonna be, uh, it's gonna have to come from the equity side, to be honest. It's, I think that, that's been the, you know, I know Brett and I were talking about kind of S&P energy fund stats earlier. I don't, I don't recall, money's flowing back in. Um, it's not flowing back in as quickly as I kind of thought it would. Obviously, there's a hanging, well, you know, a recession comment also. But from a from a debt side, you know, you're kind of there's a level that's needed uh, from the from the commercial banks, corporate banks. Um, you still have also a cons- you know a lot of the deal activity that comes is from the A and D market, and you honestly, you know. There's a lot of sellers and there's not a ton of buyers. We're talking about that lunch. Like, there's a lot, you know, you're smart. Buy low, sell high. That's a genius way to do it. I, I wish I've done it more in my life. Uh, same time is, you know, there's only so much capital and a lot of the valuations on the public companies don't make economic sense to make that purchase. Um, if they're, why pay, you know, 3X for something where your stock's trading at 1X? You know, it's just like, it's, it's hard to use the currency. Uh, when the equity markets, if they get back in line in terms of the valuations, they can start using that um, uh, to deploy on the acquisition side. But if they do get in line, you know, having an empty war chest, as we've seen in the past, sometimes not the best thing. And so strategic acquisition, the word strategic there, very key. Um, but from a, you know, a lending perspective, what's going to fill it? You know, there's been some VPP stuff. I know you said you've worked on a few of those. Uh, I've heard it from, from family office things. We, you know, we kind of keep up with different pools of capital. Um, you know, it's, it's challenged. That's, that's, a, that's the best way to put it. There's the high yield. And, you know, a lot of times, you, you know, I think there's been, I looked at the high yield issuances year to date. Uh, I think there's been one, two, I see two EMP companies, Hillcorp and Earthstone. Earthstone has made a ton of acquisitions, turned out Revolver. Hillcorp was turning out something else. And so, you know, it's, they made sense. Um, would they do it if they, they, you know, in that market? I bet they're glad they did with the rate rises. You know, if I, I think the energy issuance will be at one of the lowest ever this year. Uh, and I'm not a high yield uh, energy guy, so that, that, yeah. that's kind of that, that answers your your question on that. Where's it going to come from, Brett? What, you know, you spent a lot of time in that world. What, what do you think? I think it's so interest. It's energy is so cyclical. I mean, we look at just the last ten years, and you know, here we were in 2013, and there was a new portfolio company announced every week. It always had a animal name and a color name. You know, 
And there was also a new regional bank, like you mentioned. At one point, there were probably 70 to 80 banks. And they were new. So these were privately held companies, and they were buying off from the majors. And all of a sudden, you got the downturn, and you couldn't do a lot of, now you got consolidation. And then now it's, can you access the capital markets? And you got these little pockets being filled in between, you know, there was a VPP shop that, that popped up uh, down the hallway from us last year with guys that used to be on a trading desk of a, of a large firm. So they get VPPs, right? Because you have to hedge a lot of that production. So they got the point, but at, at first they were doing up to 20 million and their view was it's 20% roughly and it's kind of smaller deals, but it's very binary. They said people either, they can't get financing for these smaller deals because that doesn't exist as much anymore. Um, so they either did it or they didn't. And if they did it, they could do the project. If they didn't take the VPP and the 20%, they didn't do it at all. And then all of a sudden, they just got inundated in the last seven months with deals. True story. To a point where now they upped it to like 50. And they were, and they were raising a fund for 300 million because the need was, was there to your point about where's it gonna come from. And then you see people doing securitizations to fill another gap for a couple hundred thousand or a couple hundred million. And then you got the capital markets acting like they are. It's just kind of a, you know, EMP seems to evolve to some extent. You got the mezzlinners that we haven't even talked about, and that's a whole nother universe. Yeah. But RVL seems to, it's less players and it's a, but it's still sticky. Well, and, you know? and I've used this line a lot with clients and other bankers or bank leadership over the years is, you know, there's a few things that have to occur for a healthy upstream environment. You have to have a healthy, I mean, healthy, you can't have a overtapped services industry. You can't get wells, you can't get sand, you can't get frack crews. It has to be a vibrant service industry to support the upstream industry. And they've been, you know, they're, they're now having their, you know, time in the sun. Uh, but, you know, when it was negative oil and everything was being shut in and that, it was really bad times. And you kind of look out and you're like, you, you know, yeah, you're getting a lot of rig deals done right now. But at the same time, it's like, we know what's coming when prices go up. Uh, the second to that, you know, kind of tripod is the, the RBL space. If you don't have a healthy and vibrant RBL environment, you cannot have a upstream environment. And so healthy, and then the third of the tripod is the borrower. So like the, the upstream company. So you have to have those three, they're not all, they're disproportionate in their value and whatnot, but if one of those three are struggling, then you've got a problem. Right. That's just, that's, that's, you know, very high level way to look at that space. So, you know, so obviously there's been a lot of focus recently on kind of returning to oil, returning to traditional energy sources, but I think we all know that ESG hasn't gone away and isn't really going away anytime soon. You know, there's definitely a push for alternative energy, which, you know, I think people can debate about how that fits in with the overall energy uh, capacity and production, both in the U.S. and abroad. but, you know, Brett, to your earlier point, this is all still in its infancy, right? So this is, you know, ESG is hot, it's new, it's up and coming, but it's, it's still reliant to a certain extent on governmental incentives and things which can expose it potentially to, you know, risk factors that traditional oil and gas have just moved past because that's a much older, well-developed industry. Right. So when it comes to ESG and you know, I think Aaron and I want to talk about that a little bit more is, you know, where do you see capital coming for ESG? And do you see it being a place where commercial banks are there in terms of actually being able to provide financing that's not kind of tax credit based or project based? Or do you think that, you know, we're still kind of at 
to, to use you know mm-hmm. uh, a term we talked about earlier, do you think we're still kind of in the first inning of the game? Uh, let me kick off here, uh, and then uh, Brett's an expert here as well, it's an expert among many things. Expert. I'll throw that around loosely. No, I'm just kidding. Um, you know, uh, from a regional corporate banking, commercial banking standpoint, I think we're pretty far. I think the, the ones that are going to set the path are the JPs, the Wells, the, city, the big four. Uh, and then the other side of that is our friends across the pond are, and our friends in Japan on the banking side are very interested in this. I came from BBVA, was there for 15 years. They've spent a lot of time investing in the ESG side. Um, there's a lot of meetings and a lot of pitches. I've yet to see a pitch um, you know, that I was sitting there going, man, they're gonna do this tomorrow. But the thought generation and leadership that the European and, and some of the broader US banks are pushing is great. It's just, is it viable? And I don't, you know, I, I'm not going to debate that one way or the other. It's just, I, there is a place for it. I'm a, a, in my opinion, it's an all energy kind of thing. I think nuclear, I think natural gas is a huge piece. And I think that's the change post Ukraine, post, you know, kind of COVID is like, I think pre COVID, pre Ukraine war, pre that gas was kind of, you know, the LNG was a good piece, but I think the Europeans have adopted that as like, all right, that's an acceptable piece. It didn't help that you know Putin shut off their gas pipeline that was funding all their stuff. But you know, like they realized, like, oh my gosh, energy security is national security. Energy security is that, and that's where, right? I've said this before: is you know, from an energy perspective, I think the industry as a whole needs to step back and you know, be proud of what they've done. We've been, you know, when I we had some guys come in from Madrid uh, for an offsite, you know, call it eighteen. The 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 during my presentation to him as I pulled up the Jimmy Carter 1973 oil embargo speech where he's like, we're going to run out of oil in 19, I forget the date, we'll call it 1990. And I played it for him and like, you know, oil was, you know, gas stations were closed three days a week. You know, a lot of listeners will, you know, remember these days. I wasn't born yet at the time, but you know, I've gone (laughs) back and appreciate the history of it. Um, And, you know, we don't want to go back there. And I think it's, you know, if, if you could give me a green option versus that, with equal you know cost and equal that I'm going to take the green option if you give me a green option and a traditional option and it's you know three percent higher I'm going to take the green option because I'm you know I like being outdoors I like clean air if you're going to give me the green option at 120 percent of the cost of the, I'm not going to do it and neither can the the economy or the average citizen and so I think that's where it comes down I think it is in the first inning I'll, I'll shut up and listen here but like I really do think it is the first inning uh, second inning maybe and it's going to evolve a lot and it's going to our kids will benefit from the investment that they're doing today yeah I go back last year yeah yeah I go back last year and I think about the environment so there were days when I would talk to ex RBL bankers or current RBL bankers and they'd be asking about what does diversified banking look like I mean you just go back and you think about how much has changed in kind of nine to twelve months and you had ex-CEOs who sold their portfolio companies at a discount who are now trying to raise money, which by the way, like you said earlier, is really hard to do when you don't have a background um, and, and some success level to kind of build upon. But, and they were doing carbon capture because that was kind of the sexy topic at the time. And then you kind of fast forward and part of the problem is it's somewhat of a moving goalpost. So I believe it also is super early stage. I just think it's really hard to pick winners. Um, there's so many EMPs who have built, you know, additional arms, like take privately held funds who raise LP capital, maybe it's from pensions, endowments, whatever, and they've also, many of whom have changed their names from 
whatever resources to just, you know, inter- like something generic because that's what's, that was what was popular or needed to happen nine months ago to raise money. Now it's changed a little bit. But, and then from a banking standpoint, you've got, um, we were talking about this at lunch, you've got project finance folks that have always been around. Solar and wind is nothing new. These are just larger projects that have always been, always been hard for banks, commercial banks to finance, period. It just is. And then now they've got these, you know, sustainable finance and alternative energy groups, but they're all in the infancy stages. So just to answer your question, you said, where does the money come from? I think it's equity risk. I don't think a bank is ready to, to pick winners when you've got all this, all these people throwing pitch books at them, but nobody has a history. So if anybody comes to you and they're like, I'm an expert in this, I don't, I don't really believe it unless they can somehow prove it. I think they were reformed upstream or something type of a, of a person with some kind of engineering background. Yeah, and I think too, and you hit on a good point there. And you know, I covered a lot of the midstream, both investment grade and high yield, uh, at BVA prior to come over to the independent financial. And you know, what I saw helping build out that midstream vertical there was a lot of the, especially the investment grade midstream guys, and even the, the higher high yield midstream guys, they were already doing a lot of the what when they print a sustainability report these days because the stockholders want it or the institutional investors want it. They've been doing it for 20 years. And, you know, whether it's in the community, how they operate on a safety basis, uh, and, and that's just how they did the business. And that's a really cool uh, thing to see. It's like, yeah, it, it, it's almost like they're bragging on these sustainability reports, but mm-hmm. we talked to a lot of these CFOs, treasurers, CEOs, they're actually doing it. They've been doing it. Um, and, and, you know, it's good to highlight that because I think, you know, I don't know if it's the IPAA or whoever the main kind of lobby for the old business has done a poor job. Uh, not to throw them out of the bus, but you know, it was like uh, the energy security we offer, the things we've done from a green perspective uh, as an industry as a whole, and advertising that to the to the, the the public. And I saw energy transfer. We were watching the Astros game, and they had a you know kind of a commercial that they played through the World Series and other, uh, and they still play it. And it says all this comes from oil and gas, and just more of an educational video uh, and you're seeing that done by a public company versus a lobbying organization so you know I think that type of education is helpful uh, when someone pulls up to a gas pump uh, and is yelling about six dollar gas or you know yeah. it just helps it helps, it helps define it. so from a not to digress but from an energy perspective I think the industry advertising and you know spending dollars and from whether it's a lobbying or just a public information piece is helpful Nice name drop on the Astros World Series. There you go. Go stress. Can we kind of go back to how companies hedge interest rate risk? Yeah, I, I know we I punted to Blake and then just never got it back. That's what the A team, that's what the A players do, man. They just take the ball and run with it. Um, look, I, my standpoint of having done both rates and energy for the last 20 years mainly is control what you can control. That is not a recommendation to lock prices, whether it's commodities or rates. Every borrower is a little different, but it's, it's, there, there's a reason why many boards of publicly traded companies, even privately held or even private equity sponsors, have some kind of mandate, like you need to be hedged for this amount of time in, in commodities, of course, calendar years. In interest rates, it's usually fixed floating mix. So if you're a, you know, the, the, the stronger you are on the credit scale, so if you're publicly traded in your investment grade, they're going to be more floating than they are fixed. They can handle it. Uh, they, more, they probably have more cash on hands. They have access to capital markets. But when you get to privately held borrowers across anything, you're technically lower on the credit scale. You don't have access to capital markets. Therefore, 
you may have a, like let's take the most simple capital structure, you got a revolver that's floating, maybe it's seasonal, it's working capital up and down, and then you got a term loan, maybe it's from an acquisition or maybe it's real estate, all the above. You generally see people fix the term debt, float the revolver, and have some kind of mix between fix and floating. Alternatively, uh, I cannot say how many meetings I've been in where CFO will say, I don't think of you in rights, we're staying floating. Well, alternatively, we fix everything. Well, that's a total view on rates. That's why you see a lot of boards kind of target a 50-50 a, a mix. It goes back to control what you can control. If, if you have a two-year tenor, maybe you're less concerned. If you have a five or a 10-year maturity, you're probably a lot more uh, concerned. As, as I look back on the years, EMPs traditionally do not hedge interest rate risk. Why? Because that is such a small percentage of the risk compared to commodities. However, if I look back and I think back to the you know, 15 years ago, you had a privately held fund structures that were LP-based, family office-based, whatever. They were actually hedging calendar years, um, kind of one, two, and three years out. So I suspect um, you're going to see that a little bit more right now. And we'll see what inflation comes out at t tomorrow. You'll see the Fed on July 27th. So if, if you had, it, it, as we come to the end here, if you had to guess about tomorrow, what do you think the number is? Oh, I think the number comes out, I mean, 8.6-ish percent, and it's going to be year over year. You just, um, it's really what does the outlook look like. And personally, I'm, I'm going to pay attention to the VIX index, just to throw that out there. The VIX is such an important aspect of what we're doing right now. Um, usually, when a Fed enters a hiking cycle, the VIX is like at 17. And this time, when they kicked it off, it was at 26. And there's all kind of empirical evidence that says when the VIX hits 34 to 36, that's a time that the stock market actually rallies. So if you look back this year, we hit our highs in January. We have three bear market rallies, and we're kind of ending one. This week, we've seen a bunch of downs, but coming into it, we were up 6%. So that's the third bear market rally we've had. What were the VIX in the days leading up to all three bear market rallies? 34 to 36. So we had an 11% jump that lasted about three weeks back in March. In May, lasted about three weeks. It was seven percent. And this last one, you text you're me upset. the next time you see that. So you like that? <laughs> yeah. So you kind of know what happened. <laughs> well, just keep a little dry powder. These are not recommendations <laughs> by Texas Capital or Brett Finn. But, but, but back to that ten thousand dollars of cash. Now yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are kind of things that um, you really want to also pay attention to, just outside of just inflation by itself. Okay. And Blake, uh, if you had to guess on uh, oil prices, where you see them landing? It's, it's funny you ask. I just wrote down a number because I thought uh, I figured that was coming. I think for year 12, 31, 22, I'm going to take a 86.53 crude price. That's uh, that's US not powerful number. And yeah. then, uh, exactly. And then I think on natural gas, I'm going to go. I'm going to go 7.89. Brett, what do you say? With, with a major commodity background, I'm writing this down so I'll remember. I'm somewhat restrained from giving an opinion on that, but I will say that the I think there's been talk over the last nine months about a commodity super cycle. And if you're a student of history and you go back to the 70s very easily, you can convince yourself that we're at elevated prices for, for longer than most people are used to, which I would put myself in that camp. Well, opposite sides of it. We'll see where it shakes out. I love it. I love it. Tune, tune back in and we'll see who's right. Maybe we'll have a part two. Are y'all allowed to opine on this? I'll, I'll leave it to the experts. That we'll put it that way. <laughs> it's a dangerous word to use around us. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Well, thank you all again so much for joining uh, Aaron and I today. And thank everyone for listening to our Let's Talk Lending podcast. 
You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple iTunes or Google or by visiting the Winston Strong website for more insights on the latest market updates and trends in the finance practice area. So, uh, Brett, Blake, thank you again for joining us. I think this was uh, very informative and hope everyone uh, gets as much out of it as we did. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate it, guys.